Well, hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast. The topic for today is STIs and HIV, HIV care for transgender people in general practice. My name's Andrew Knight. I'm a GP. Uh, I currently work in Southwest Sydney, where I provide um, general practice and primary care to people with severe chronic mental illness. And I'm very pleased to be here because this is a topic which uh, I think we're all dealing with increasingly and sometimes don't feel all that empowered to deal with effectively. So we've asked us asking some questions today, which we hope will match what you what will help you in your practice. How do I consult effectively and respectfully with transgender patients? What do my transgender patients need and want from me? Are there particular HIV and STI issues for transgender patients? And where can I go for information? Uh, when I need it. I think it's true that GPs are increasingly caring for patients with gender dysphoria or patients who may identify as transgender. So in this session, we'll explore issues and hopefully provide some practical skills to help you provide care in this challenging area. So we thought carefully about our learning objectives. So at the end of this session, we hope that you will be able to describe how HIV and STIs affect transgender people you may be able to discuss transgender people's expectations from general practice and maybe even some modifications to your practice that might help meet people's expectations. We'll uh, Hopefully you'll be able to identify best practice language and, and sexual history taking for transgender patients, including some resources that you can look at to uh, get a deeper understanding of providing safe and effective care to transgender clients in general practice. And importantly, um, we'll hear about the patient experience, which can be really difficult for us as GPs, but we're really privileged to have a consumer uh, making themselves available to join us. Before I go any further, I am going to just take a moment to acknowledge that we all are meeting on Aboriginal land, wherever you are. I'm sitting on uh, Gadigal land, your nation, and I want to acknowledge uh, Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging, and also welcome any Aboriginal people listening in today. But now we're going to introduce our experts. So uh, Lawrence, I might hand over to you first to introduce yourself. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, my name's Lawrence. I'm also a GP. Uh, I work in a busy Newtown practice with a large population of trans and gender diverse people. Um, in the last 10 years, I've also worked in public health, sexual health and the emergency department and done a little bit of extra study in infectious diseases. Um, this has given me a little bit of experience in this area, which I hope I can share. And my pronouns are he, him. Brilliant. Thanks, Lawrence. And um, we'll go to you, Trini. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Trini, and I'm a sexual health physician working in northern Sydney. I am the director of uh, the sexual health service for the northern Sydney local health district. Um, I specialise in HIV and STIs and we have um, a large cohort of gender affirming care patients um, at our centre. So I too, like um, the other speakers here, hope to share my experience um, and hopefully it would be useful for the people who listen. Brilliant. Thanks, Trini. And um, now we go to uh, our consumer representative, Eloise, to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Eloise and I'm from the New South Wales Gender Centre. My role is as Health and Communications Manager, which means I get to interact with a lot of uh, professionals who uh, have questions about the trans and gender diverse community and I get to tell our stories and our perspectives from a frontline service um, through, the, through my own words as a, as a community member. All right, well, let's move into uh, the, the subject matter. And I'm going to go to Lawrence first. And Lawrence, I want you to think of, if you had to give us three main issues that you uh, would share with GPs that transgender clients ask you to manage in your general practice, what would they be? Um, so in my practice, uh, I generally see many issues, but they kind of fall under three umbrellas. These are gender-affirming care, mental health and STIs and HIV. Okay, so gender-affirming care, mental health and STIs and HIV. Three big topics. Yeah. Um, we might... 
we could spend the whole podcast on any one of them, I suppose. But let's focus in on number one, first of all. Uh, Lawrence, do you want to expand a little bit on, on gender-affirming care? Yeah. So what do I mean when I say gender-affirming care? I guess gender affirmation comprises multiple things. I think it's social, psychological, behavioural and medical. Um, social affirmation, we're probably all aware of. These are things like chosen name, pronouns, changing the way we appear and coming out. These are really big parts of gender affirmation and can be really liberating and scary and something that everyone in the medical sphere can be supportive of. Um, in regards to psychological and medical care, uh, we as GPs don't need to be experts in this. I'm definitely not. Um, I think what we really need to know is where to guide people so that they can find safe and supportive experts. Okay. Um so there were two other pillars. Um, we're going to get into them in a bit, a bit of detail. Do you want to talk about, uh, you know, briefly sketch out mental health uh, as an issue? Or... Yeah, sure. Yeah, look, I think mental health is a, is a really complicated one. I think it's important to state that being trans is not a mental health issue. The issues that trans people experience around mental health are often to do with living in a world where they don't feel accepted or mm. often there's a bit of past trauma in part due to invalidation. So again, you know, I think it's important not to add to that burden and we can try to do this by creating a kind of positive and accepting and validating experience in our clinics. And again, it's about, I think, really being aware about the kind of safe and expert referrals that we can make in this space. Um, yeah, and the next umbrella being sexual health testing and uh, STIs and HIV. I think this is a really essential part of medical care for everyone and in particular the trans community. And I think that this is really a part of the medical care that can be led by us as GPs and something that we should definitely go into more detail throughout the rest of the podcast. Okay, that's great. That sketches out where we're going. Um, and I'm going to ask you actually just briefly, I think for me gender-affirming care is challenging. Um, I don't feel expert in it. Um, I don't even know the full content of it. Um, and I think a lot of G, I don't, I don't know, but I suspect a lot of GPs feel the same. Um, is that okay? How do I handle that? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you would definitely be with the majority there. I think that um, lots of lots of GPs, when they have a patient who comes in asking for a gender affirming care, um, aren't really sure what to do or where to head. And I think um, what's really important. Uh, and it's a skill that many GPs kind of understand is that you can't be an expert in everything. And we really embrace everyone who wants to learn about gender affirming care, but we definitely don't expect any GPs to be an expert in this field. I think what's important is knowing your local services and pathways that you can refer to. Yeah. So look, my top three that I really like in my area, there's Gender Centre in Annandale, which is wonderful. Uh, T150 in Surrey Hills, which is great. And then my local sexual health service. Um, we all have one. And, you know, I'm really lucky that I can pick up the phone and they're really happy to discuss pretty much anything um, that's under this umbrella with me. Uh, I think another great resource that people can use if they're interested is Equinox. Now, it's a Melbourne-based institution and they've got some really good um, online reading materials for, for patients as well as doctors. And, um, yeah, I think that can be a really great point to hit. And so, look, while you're 100% right, Andrew, in saying that, you know, GPs aren't experts in this and we don't expect them to be, but I think what's really clear is that we can all expect that we try and create an inclusive and safe environment for your trans patients because they will actually need your expertise in lots of other health issues that we're really good at dealing with. Mm. I think what GPs are expert in is accepting anyone who walks through the door and uh, and learning. And I think a lot of GPs are very keen to learn how to extend that skill in various areas, and that includes uh, care of people with transgender issues. And talking about referrals, what a great opportunity. You said, you know, your local sexual health clinic. Well, we are fortunate to have a real expert with us, uh, Trini. Uh, you would be on the receiving end of those referrals. Um, could you just give us a bit of a picture of 
the sorts of referrals you would receive in this area and the sorts of work that you do in the, in the whole area of, of transgender uh, health? Um, we get a whole lot of referrals for transgender health care provision um, and we provide or we, we aim to provide a holistic service. So we have social workers, psychologists, counselling, as well as medical hormonal treatment. Um, we have a dietitian as well. And um, we've just started up a walking group for our younger transgender clients who feel quite isolated. The sort of referrals um, we get are self-referrals and also general practice referrals. Uh, the general practice referrals are very wide ranging. So it might be someone who is established on hormonal treatment, who just wants a continuation of that treatment and they've just moved into our area or people who've been thinking about it for many years and for whatever their, their circumstances have recently changed to the point where they're able to finally access care. We've also got younger people um, who come in and have, are, are exploring their, their, their gender identity. So the referrals from GPs can range from, please see this patient for gender affirming care. It could be this patient is established on gender affirming care and would like some counselling um, or some mental health support, or it could be um, this patient is well established and is moving into their area. They've been on hormone treatment for many years. So they do, they do vary quite widely. Okay. And I think, um, so my experience uh, is that um, sexual health clinics, I, I have experienced quite good um, shared care where that, there's that really good model of the expert in a particular topic area, but also the general practitioner who knows the patient well and the patient wants to continue that relationship in the longer term. Is that something that works for you or do you work with that model where you work with GPs? How does that work for you in your, in your work? Um, it depends upon what the GP wants and what the patient wants. Mm. So I'm very, very happy to do shared care. I think it's a wonderful model. Um, it allows the patient choice. It also um, educates myself and hopefully the patient and the general and the general practitioner, depending on their um, level of skill. And it gives options for patients for other health concerns. Um, I think. A lot of GP referrals we get, um, the GPs in our area, it's a fairly new area, they might not feel comfortable in it. And so it's a referral onto us for their entire gender affirming care um, provision. Uh, but they are aware of the patient's trans identity, um, whether they be a trans man or trans woman, and certainly able to see them for their um, other health concerns. So we're happy to work on any level. Um, I'm certainly happy to provide information, um, referral pathways, if our service is not, um, it's not appropriate for that patient, or there are other options available that that patient prefers. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So we've had a bit of an introduction. We've heard uh, the sorts of things that Lawrence sees as the key issues for general practice in terms of gender-affirming care and the mental health issues that may arise, uh, and also the whole area of STIs and HIV testing. And we've heard a bit from Trini about um, the, the specialist care within sexual health uh, as one place where referrals can be made. And Lawrence has mentioned a couple of other resources that, that we can think about when um, seeking help for patients that come to us. But um, this is a great opportunity to actually go to an expert in the area and talk to our consumer rep and ask Eloise, what makes, what constitutes a welcoming environment for you? If uh, you go to a general practice, it'd be great to hear some thoughts from you, from your experience and also your experience as a community uh, saying uh, what, what's helpful. So for me, what creates a welcoming environment is a space, um, a practice, whereas a trans and gender diverse person I'm able to trust that um, the staff and the healthcare providers um, respect my identity, respect um, 
my need to um, to kind of disclose information about myself that is personal, that uh, in the in the world that we live in is often judged. Um, I want to be able to go to to a practice and know that that information about me is respected, is managed well. Um, if I'm a trans and gender diverse person who um, is perhaps in the process of transition where my um, I'm still going through the process of, of documenting or changing documentation, um, I want to be able to go to a practice and know that someone's going to get my pronouns correct um, and that they are not going to make the mistake perhaps of, of dead naming me um, because these are issues that really affect the mental health of the trans and gender diverse community. Um, turning up to an environment where you're going to be vulnerable, um, disclosing information about yourself that you do not feel is being respected, um, and the kinds of language or the kinds of uh, approaches that a GP might undertake that signal to me as a consumer that you're maybe on the fence about accepting gender diverse people, that perhaps you feel that this is an environment where you can discuss um, gender diversity, identity, outside of the context of that person seeking um, care um, is not something that we that we are going to experience. So I want to rock up, I want to be met and respected and I want to be able to trust that the GP um, that I'm seeing is, uh, is aware of how gender-affirming care works, is aware of my needs and is focused on my health and not necessarily on my gender. I think one of the most important things any service can do, regardless of whether you're primary care or specialist care, inpatient or outpatient, is to create a safe space. And we try and do that for all of our patients. And a safe space can mean particular things for, um, for our gender affirming care patients. And that may be the flags the, um, that indicate Yes, we are open to discussing this. It's also our um, registration forms, allowing people to use a preferred name rather than their, um, their legal name, for example, being able to uh, address them in their correct pronouns and their preferred gender. And I think those sorts of things we can all do regardless of how experienced we are with dealing um, with uh, patients accessing gender-affirming care. Thanks, Trini. That's really helpful to get that from your perspective. It's it's quite it's I think one of the one of the reasons we have information about what our um, our patients want is we did a. Um, we did a research project into our gender affirming care model of care and um, asked our patients directly what they wanted, how they felt in the clinic, what they thought was missing, um, whether they felt safe, whether they liked our model of care. So we, I think, I think there is, and there is quite a little bit of data out there um, in the literature, which um, does discuss safe places and flags and um, lanyards and badges and pronouns. So that can also help. And, and I want to ask you, actually, Lawrence, I noticed when you introduced yourself that you gave your pronouns. And that's not something that I'm in the habit of doing um, at the moment. But are you able to just tell us a little bit about that? Um, is that something that you think is a really good idea? I guess you do. But could you just expand a little bit on that and, and the importance of pronouns and, and, us, and us identifying our own pronouns? Yeah. No, thanks, Andrew. I, I appreciate that. Um, look, I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. I think one is that what it does is that, that it demonstrates that you're aware and you're aware that this is a an issue for a lot of people and you're not just accepting that people have preferred pronouns and that you will use them, but also that you're embracing it as well and trying to be a leader in 
putting it forward. Um, hilariously, my partner told me that um, cis white dudes never say their pronouns, uh, which she kind of laughed at me for the other day. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's you know I think I think that's important because what it shows to your patients who are trans is that it's a value that you share with them and it definitely opens the door for them to feel safe to talk about these issues with you and to feel like they'll be heard by you. Do you have a perspective on that, Trina? I I agree with um, Lawrence. It gives you a, it gives implicit permission for the patient to discuss their pronouns. Um, So if I, introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Trini, I'm one of the doctors here, my pronouns are she, her, then I don't have to actually ask the patient directly, or I might do, but it's easier then to ask the patient directly to say, what are your pronouns? What what would you like to be called? And that creates that safety, creates that um, understanding that we are open to discussing this and we will try and help where we can. Okay, that's great. Really helpful to, to have some thinking for us on that. Now, I'm going to go back to you, Lawrence, and I'm going to focus in on a particular part of what you raised early on, and that is a whole area of STIs and HIV care um, and, and how you approach that with trans patients. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about how you might approach raising the issue with trans patients. Yeah, sure. I think um, the key here is just about normalising it and making it really routine. You know, sexual health is something that's important for everyone, not just the trans community. And I feel like it's got potential minefields no matter who you talk about. But it's something that GPs do a majority of. And to be honest, I think we do it really well. What I normally say is very simple. I just say, as a part of your routine health check, I would like to do a sexual health screen as well. Is that okay with you? And I've actually yet to get a no. Um, There are some patients who do say that they do their regular checks elsewhere and don't think it's necessary at this stage, which I think is really useful. I mean, this is becoming less common as PrEP is being kind of prescribed more within the community by GPs. Um, but outside of that, I think it works quite well. Hmm. That's extremely helpful. Um, we all operate from scripts and to hear your script as someone who does it all the time is really helpful for us who do it less often. Um, and then, so that, that's how to raise it. Um, all right. Now at this point, again, we've got a consumer with us and uh, Eloise, it's a sensitive topic, but it's a, part of everyone's life, um, how would you like this to be raised with you in a consult? Or how would trans people, how do you, how, what's your understanding of, of a good way to raise this with trans people? So how would I as a community member uh, like to be approached um, when it comes to screening for sexual health? I think this is a really tricky one. And, and the most important takeaway here is to make sure that the patient slash client slash consumer is not feeling like they're being targeted as some minority group that that ticks a whole bunch of boxes when it comes to potential um, uh, risky sexual activity. So really, it, I think initially it's about building the rapport with with your consumer um, and asking a range of questions, um, some of them which might indicate um, or kind of test the water around sexual health, but of course that is a, a complex thing. I think it's really worth saying that in Australia, um, we've bucked the trends when it comes to uh, the the results around HIV and sexual health infection rates in the trans and gender diverse community. We see extremely high um, cases in in the states, South America, but for some reason that we're not quite clear, um, the Australian community tends to kind of to go lower and whatever that is about the says about um, sexual practices amongst the trans community is is kind of conjecture at this stage but I think this is also a way to kind of talk about the success of the community to to take care of its of its own health and this is a really important thing 
um, that GPs should be consider when having uh, considering when having conversations with the community because we do know that trans and gender diverse people and trans and gender diverse women in particular are reluctant to seek appropriate healthcare in a timely fashion and frequently find themselves um, in a serious situation where they're having to front up to an emergency department where things have gotten a lot more serious. So I think um, this is a great opportunity to to just to have a discussion with with your client um, and to build that rapport that will allow you to to um, ask these kinds of questions. I think one of the key things that um, that providers often feel a little uncomfortable about is the language, and there are quite a few minefields or perceived minefields when doing a sexual health screen because. Um, you have to ask about, you, you will, you have to ask about people's risk behaviour uh, if you're going to do a comprehensive screen. And so asking the patient what they prefer the language to be can be a really powerful thing. So I will often say to someone, um, so I'm going to have to ask you some sensitive questions uh, to get an idea of of what sort of tests we need to do and what sort of samples we need. So do you have oral sex? Yes, no, righty, righty, right. That one's easy because everyone just has one mouth. So if it's a um, assigned female at birth and they haven't had any surgery, you might say, do you have front sex or back sex or how would you prefer me to refer it to or how do you refer to it or what do you call front sex? What language would you like me to use? Uh, it is, some people are okay if you say vaginal sex, but some people can get a little bit um, sensitive about that depending on their past experience. So when in doubt, I find it's better just to ask the patient what they prefer. Mm. People are very open to helping. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I'm going to ask, we've got you too, Lawrence. What about that sort of going into the sexual history like Trini's described how she might approach it. Have you got, how do you approach it? Um, no, I thought, I thought Trini's insight was excellent. Look, I think we talked about kind of making it part of your routine practice. I'm all about routine. So I like to make this our routine. Mm. I like to keep it really short, quick and clinical. Mm. I feel like in making it clinical, there's less emotion around it. And I think that, um, you're less likely to get awkwardness or feel like you're making any judgment. Um, I actually, well, I don't do it personally, but a lot of the doctors I work with use autofill where a lot of these questions are like pre-recorded and will come up on your screen. Um, I kind of like the 5P approach. I don't know if anyone's heard of that before. I just love acronyms and that kind of goes through preferences, partners, practices, protection and past history. Um, I think and the first point preferences is exactly what Trini was talking about. Do you have preferred language um, for terms you use to refer to your own body? And that essentially means genitals. And I think this is really important, um, as Trini discussed, is that we really need to make sure that they feel comfortable. And this is one of the best ways to do that. The second thing with partners, um, I often check if someone has a regular partner and if so, are they monogamous? Um, have they had sex with any other partners since their last sexual health screen? Um, what uh, identity would your partners give themselves in terms of gender? That could be really useful. And have you had sex with anyone who's known to have an STI? Now, in terms of practices, this is what Trini was talking about. We might come up with some terms that can be a little bit um, more awkward. Again, I think if you just go through the motions quite clinically, it can feel like there's less attached to it. So when did you laugh to have sex? When did you laugh to have an STI screen? Do you have any symptoms? Have you had oral sex given or received? Have you had front sex? Now you can say front or you can use the patient's preferred term for their genitals here. It's totally up to you. Have you had anal sex given or received? Have you been overseas? If so, have you had sex overseas? Have you had tattoos? Most people these days have tattoos, but the important thing is, were they done outside Australia? Do you inject drugs? Have you been sexually assaulted? That's a 
difficult question to ask, but a really, really mm. important one. Mm. Have you engaged in sex work and have you been incarcerated? Wow. So the next the next P, I'll just go through my list because <laughs> I'm very structured, uh, is protection. So do you use condoms um, and do you have sex without condoms? Um, do you use PrEP? A very important thing to talk about with protection and obviously past history of STIs. Mm. Yeah. That, that's brilliant. I like Is that all the P's? <laughs> that's, there's more P's if you want, but I stick to five. Okay. <laughs> I'll just yeah. put in, if you ever make up a mnemonic, can I put in a plea that you use a word with different letters, like five A's, five P's? I'm so dumb. I have great trouble remembering all the P's or all the A's. <laughs> so I like a um, mnemonic which has a word, you know. Anyway. A. <laughs> I'll tweak it. I'll tweak it for you, Andrew. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, one. come up with some sort of rude word that you can you never forget. <laughs> yeah, Trini, so, what did you want to say, Trini? Oh, um, with the question of sexual assault, we find that a very hairy question. Also, yeah. um, the way that I tend to ask it is, have you ha- ever had any unwanted sexual contact? Because what I've found in the past is sexual assault. Some people um, relate that to a a violent sort of um, incident, whereas unwanted sexual contact can also be a sexual assault but may not in that patient's understanding come across as a sexual assault. So that's how how I ask it. The other thing that I think is really important is um, contraception and pregnancy, Uh, particularly for assigned female at birth clients who may have um, assigned male at birth partners, uh, that's something that they may not feel particularly comfortable in discussing, but something that needs to be addressed in that holistic care model. So another P is pregnancy. Um, Fabulous. Thanks, guys. I think those sorts of um, the experience of hearing someone talk about how they do it is really helpful. But, as again, we've got a consumer with us, and I'm going to go to you, Eloise. You've heard the doctors talk about it, uh, you know, from our, from our side of the fence. But um, I wonder if there's any light that you can help us with shedding. Um, w- w- what's it like from your perspective? Maybe things that are helpful or things that aren't helpful in taking a sexual history. Okay. So there's a lot of information there, and I'd just like to turn this around in terms of the community. Um, And I'd like to answer this in a a slightly longer version, just to get everyone to be thinking about the community member, the client customer that is just sat down in front of your chair. Now, the transgender community experiences high rates of discrimination, microaggression, even going to the shops can be a source of, of stress and strain and anxiety and discrimination. And we all have in our lives um, the experience of, of encountering people that, that lower our, res- our resilience. Now, but for the trans and gender diverse community, that resilience lowering happens on a daily, sometimes a couple of times a day. And over time, as that builds up, resilience continues to drop and drop and drop and drop. So our, our consumer who's caught the bus to go to, the, to, to your practice, um, to jump through all the different hurdles, to sit in front of you, is coming to you not as someone who's a blank slate, but someone who's got had an experience or a history of things that is going to be lowering their, um, their resilience and making them much more likely to be reactive. So with that in mind, what's really, really important is that you build the rapport with your client so that they feel comfortable and safe to disclose what is really quite um, heavy, um, um, you know, information about really important issues, but but issues that are going to be confronting. So this might even be topics that you aren't going to necessarily talk about in a first, maybe even a second session, depending upon how you think it's going. But ideally, the most important thing that you need to do as a GP is to explain the reasons why you're asking these questions in the context of a wider community or a wider sense of identity, not specifically because this person is trans, gender diverse, non-binary or IDing in that way, but rather because um, these are important um, questions and this is a very important aspect of health 
that all of us need to be able to to address. In particular, trans people who are very vulnerable across multiple fronts um, need to be made aware that it's it's important that these questions be answered. All right, so we're going to move on to testing. Um, And I'm going to start again with you, Lawrence. so I guess physical examination and testing often linked, I suppose, but I just want to go to you and ask you, how do you approach these issues? What determines what tests you're going to take and how you're going to take them? Yeah, I think, look, I'll, I'll address that physical examination part first, because I think it's a really important point that you raised. Look, examination is usually not required and it can be really intrusive. So I think current guidelines don't require knowledge of exact genitals um, or certain surgeries to be present to guide our testing. So look, unless we're really providing part of the gender affirming care, I think there's no clinical reason um, to necessarily do this some of the time. And I think it's probably best avoided for most practitioners who don't specialise in the area. Mm. Okay. Can I just ask for a bit of clarification of that? Because what about non-transgender people with STIs? Would we be expecting some sort of physical examination or collecting the samples there, uh, Trini? Or, 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 so are you saying don't examine people who are transgender but do examine people who are not? Or just to clarify. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit um, – it's a, it's a question that comes up reasonably uh, regularly. But for asymptomatic patients there's no examination that we need to do unless the patient is con- particularly concerned so we or we do self-collected um, STI screening it's we only examine patients if they are symptomatic like a rash and or... consent yeah yeah a rash a discharge an ulcer mm. a lump a bump I can I can go on <laughs> that's <laughs> enough I think we all get the picture <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Thanks. That's really helpful, guys. Thank you. Yeah. So, look, I think a lot of the screening choices are determined by the symptoms or specific kind of risks or sexual practices of your patient. Um, In the trans community, uh, obviously, there are specific risks and this, you know, community is definitely underserviced. So, I feel like it's better to be cautious with testing. Basically, what that means is it's better to do more than less. Again, I love an autofill. I love structure. I think it's really good to do this for your pathology. Um, in terms of kind of routine testing for serology, everyone should have HIV. Everyone should have syphilis. Hepatitis B, really important. Look, some doctors only test for the surface antigen, but particularly if it's a new patient, I think it's really important to know if they're immune exposed or have been you know, vaccinated and therefore you can vaccinate where appropriate. And this means doing surface antigen, surface antibody and core antibody. Hep C, again, is something that I do regularly, but is not necessarily routine for every person. But common risks are contact with someone who has Hep C, living with HIV, PrEP use, tattoos, and injecting drug use. Um, Hep A, again, really important to establish immunity and vaccinate where appropriate. In terms of site-specific testing, so genital testing for PCR, for gonorrhea and chlamydia. That can be done either by first-pass urine or a swab. I think it's important, and kind of Trini touched on this base a little bit, that patients who are assigned female at birth, um, while self-collected genital swabs can be slightly more sensitive in detecting infections, you've just got to make sure that the patient might not be comfortable or actually able to perform this because of discomfort. And so I always give patients the choice and most of my patients prefer to do a urine. Um, I guess a good way for a doctor to approach this would be to say something like, if you were born with a cervix, it is a little bit more accurate to do a self-collected swab if you're comfortable, but if you prefer, urine testing is, is also accurate. And it's important to think about this in terms of HPV as well, which is obviously an STI. And HPV is really important for everyone who has a cervix, but it's not something that we should force upon people, but something that we should definitely encourage. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. And Trini, do you want to add anything to that? Or 
And from your perspective in specialist practice, would you do something different? Uh, well, we provide the full screen as, um, as Lawrence described. It, the different, uh, the only thing I would add is how frequently the screening occurs. And that would depend upon the risk of the patient and how many um, partners, their, their rate of partner turnover. Uh, a number of my patients, we do a baseline screen. Uh, we vaccinate them for hepatitis where we're able to because I think a harm minimisation approach is um, ideal for a lot of patients. We will then decide on how often they need screening, um, how, how often to advise them to get screening dependent on, upon their risk. But I also try and um, discuss with the patient their current risk because we're all dynamic beings and what and what maybe your situation now may be very different to your situation in six months' time, 12 months' time, even next week. And so when to come in after they've had a risk episode, what they need to do, what things they need to consider, and how often their screening should occur. So um, if they're asymptomatic, up to four times a year for people who are less active than that or... Um, are in a monogamous relationship, they may only need screening if if that situation changes, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything you guys want to add about testing? I'll probably just add that obviously we've got oral swabs and rectal swabs, which are relatively routine in this community. Um, with oral swab, I find patients are really good at self-collecting them after all the rats everyone's been doing. Um, that's that's a big change in the last two years. I used to do all of the swabs, but not anymore. And obviously, um, rectal swabs should always be self-collected. And then, you know, um, as Trini made very aware that symptomatic patients have a different screen. So things like trachomonas, mycoplasma and BV are things that I don't routinely recommend for um, asymptomatic individuals. Okay, now getting very specific, rectal swabs, self-collected, How? what sort of training do you provide? I can answer that. Um, so we do a five-hour workshop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Basically, I show them. I show patients a swab. I describe what they do. I say you put it in your bottom a couple of centimeters, and you run it around the the sides, the walls of the rectum. Um, we provide a pictograph, which is available online at the STI Programs Unit website. And they also have a testing tool, which is fantastic. Um, So we show them the pictures. You don't need to speak English to be able to do it. It's fairly obvious. Off they go. Um, If there's any problem, then I will collect it for them. Um, And I will always offer to collect the swab for the patient if they're not keen on doing it themselves. I must say I've had very, very few people who've um, opted to have a clinician collected swab compared to their own self collected swab. Um, I also reassure the patient that they're just as accurate as each other, and um, research has shown that that's true. So um, it's very easy, it's very simple. Um, patients are more than happy to do it, and they're more likely to accept rectal testing if it's a self collected swab. Okay, well, we're getting through it. Um... Lawrence, I just want to ask you a particular question. Um, HIV, if you've got a trans client and you think they're particularly high risk for HIV, uh, what about PrEP? How do you tackle that? Oh, definitely PrEP is one of the best ways to prevent HIV and um, should definitely be discussed and considered in all patients who meet the criteria. And um, I think there's a lot of people within this community that do. You know, trans patients are definitely underrepresented when it comes to uptake of PrEP. And that actually gives us as GPs the opportunity to offer PrEP when it's indicated. Um, I think it's really good to know as well that PrEP can be used continuously or on demand. And this makes it a really kind of versatile and achievable medication for most people who are at risk of HIV. Um, I would recommend that anyone who's interested in prescribing PrEP have a look at ASHAM's website. They have a great 
prep prescribing tool. Um, it helps you make the decisions to prescribe and to monitor. It's really accessible for all GPs. And I think it's, yeah, yeah I'm glad you raised this because I think it's one of the most important things in, in helping this population avoid HIV. Okay. All right. And, and another question to you, Lawrence, I'm sorry to be monopolising you a bit, but um, I, I assume you work with the general practice software. Um, it's our secret weapon, isn't it, in terms of, of remembering <laughs> things about patients. Have you found ways to utilise the software in terms of some of these issues, is this um, gender-affirming care? Um, for instance, pronouns. I'm not even sure if there is a section where you can put pronouns into medical director or best practice. Do you use it? How do we use it? Got any tips? Yeah, I do actually. I do. I think sadly you're right. There isn't actually a place. We we tend to put it into the comment section, which is just below um, patients' birth sex. Mm. Um, yeah. Look, I think I think the really important thing about using software about around this stuff it actually starts with the way that you design your new patient form. Okay, so. Gathering a lot of this information is something that can be done through that form in a really respectful way. Um, and, you know, obviously pronouns is a big part of it. Okay. I think in doing it this way, again, you kind of make it routine. So if everyone's pronoun is written in that comment section, if it's not there, you can just ask the patient. And what you actually might find is you're going to catch more gender diverse patients than you were probably aware that you even had. Um, I think it's really important though that that form that you guys create or your practice creates doesn't have anything like maybe a binary gender that might be a little bit ostracizing for the trans or, or gender diverse community that might actually have the opposite effect to what you're trying mm. to do. Um, and I guess with the other tools, it's kind of leans on what Trini was saying. Um, I... I use reminders for all of my STI screens. When I follow up a patient's results, I tell them that we need to repeat these um, screens based on their kind of risk profile. And I put a reminder in for three to 12 months, um, depending on what follow-up is needed. Obviously we discussed that, you know, they can come in sooner if their situation changes. Um, but I think that's a really easy tool you can use in all softwares. Yeah. Um, and again, autofills. You know, like we are so busy and there's so much to learn and know as GPs um, that I find these really useful. I actually, when I was younger, I worked with a specialist who said, if you don't do it every day, you should look it up. And I think that's really wise advice. And while this might not be possible in a really busy GP practice, you know, what we can do is make our lives really easy and autofill and some of those other systems in in place can really make this job a whole lot easier for us. Great. Well, look, we're getting through uh, the things that we wanted to cover. I'm going to take a moment now to just go to each of our uh, experts. And I'd just like you to reflect on the discussion we've had. If there's one takeaway that you would like to re-emphasize to our listeners, what would you say? I'll go to you first, Lawrence. Tough question. Uh, that's, that's a big one. I think keep it simple. Trans and gender diverse patients need GPs expertise. Okay. Make it easy. Know what you need to do and know who is out there to help you. And I think, you know, you can be a really valuable person in this, you know, in this community and, um, yeah, mm. that's better. You mentioned a couple of resources early on. You just want to state those again for us. Is, can, is that yeah, possible? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. So I think, look, in the city, obviously, Annandale's pretty in the city. Uh, that's Gender Centre. They're wonderful. T150s in Surrey Hills, they're also excellent. Like I said, someone like Trini, you know, your local sexual health clinic, they're wonderful and they're really happy to take your calls and give you advice. You know, you can give referrals, but you can also work with them together, which I think is great. Equinox is one that I really like because it's GP-led. So all their guidelines are how to help GPs uh, manage transgender care, whether that's sexual health or actually if you want to be a part of gender-affirming care. And I think the guidelines there are something that most people should read, 
whether you want to engage in that treatment or not, it's a really great thing to know. Mm -hmm. And they've got some really good common questions um, that, you know, patients and their families might ask about, you know, gender affirming care. And they've got all the answers there. It's, it's really wonderful. Brilliant. And Trini, you've had a bit of time to think. Your, your message, your big takeaway? It's very similar to Lawrence's message, actually. It doesn't, it doesn't really, gender affirming care does not need to be difficult. Uh, and regardless of your experience with these patients, you can make a safe space and you can refer on um, appropriately. I think one resource that um, I've provided a list of resources, which I think will be available at the end of this podcast, but um, one, one place to also look is Health Pathways. Health Pathways will have um, basic information and also referral information for your particular area. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks, Trini. Um, and yes, the, uh, these resources will be in the show notes. So if you want to follow up and, and find these things that people have mentioned, you should be able to. Um, and I'll go to Eloise. Eloise is so grateful for you to be willing to participate in this. Um, you've listened to it all. Uh, what would you like to say in conclusion to uh, the people listening to the podcast? So the last thing I'd like to say is to remind GPs that the trans community is grateful um, to get fantastic service. They really, we really appreciate it when GPs and healthcare providers go that extra distance for us and we show our gratitude. Maybe we didn't start off so well when you first met us. Maybe we were under load. Maybe we were stressed and maybe we were reactive and maybe we didn't trust you. But give us that time to, to trust you and we will be grateful and we will always come back and we will listen, um, well, as much as any patient does. But, yeah, we're, we're worth the effort, I think, is the takeaway. Okay, well, that's brilliant. I just want to, again, say thank you to each of our subject matter, matter experts, to Lawrence, to Trini, to Eloise. Thank you so much for your time. To you, our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this important topic. It reflects the fact that you see it as important and it is important. Um, I hope it's been helpful. We hope it's been helpful and we've managed to meet some of the learning objectives that we stated at the beginning. And uh, that's it. We're going to draw to a conclusion and encourage you in your mission to uh, uh, serve this underserved and uh, uh, population. Okay, thanks very much and we'll talk to you later.